0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing, produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Alice McDermott, author of seven novels, including the National Book Award winner, Charming Billy, Three of her novels, After This, At Weddings and Wakes, and That Night, were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. Her latest novel is called Someone, about a woman named Marie, a first generation American born of Irish parents into 1920s Brooklyn. The story is told from Marie's perspective as an older woman looking back on her life. She highlights a scattering of incidents, such as her father's death, her first heartbreak, her job at a funeral home, her brother's brief stint as a Catholic priest, subsequent loss of faith and eventual breakdown, her marriage, move to Long Island, and the birth of her children. I asked Alice McDermott, if stopped on the street, how she would describe her novel, Someone.
1: Um, You know, I think uh, what what the... What get me going with the story, what got me started and kept me going, um, was the setting myself the challenge um, to to find the story and find the connectedness and find the the shape um, of this very simple life. Um, uh, certainly not simple to her. None of our lives uh, strikes any of us as simple, um, but uh, but. From even a short distance, um, and uh, I hate the word ordinary, and I'm always finding myself labeled with it. But it serves, um, you know, a so to speak, ordinary life, um, and the entire breadth of it, um, and and just to to see if I could eke out of that um, without, uh, you know, imply or or, or imposing. Uh, event and melodrama, um, or something that would seem to be distinguishing uh, in in the plot line. Um, but but just to to hear her voice and to understand who this character is across the the breadth of her life, um, and a lot of a lot of what sort of got me going on this is um, I worry. Uh, i worry because i see it in my in the young writers i work with and um and because i i try to keep up with everything that's being published i worry that uh the female point of view um, is is not getting the attention you would think it would in, in the 21st century um, that the the male voice is still the dominant literary voice um and and so i thought well um, i'm can I go against the trends? Can I claim this single uh, that is the only voice of the entire novel, this single female, ordinary voice and and get it somewhere into the close of literary art?
0: So once you had decided that you wanted to write this book about a woman and keep her voice who was just as you say, you know, ordinary how do you then, how did you hone down to the specifics? Did you have a, a voice ringing in your head or the name just came to you? Or how does that happen for you?
1: Two things immediately come to mind. I mean, one is that um, she is very much a product of both her time and her community. Um, so one of the things I, I, I wanted to capture was, was both uh, how, how, where, and how she is raised shapes her um, and uh, how language uh, defines her in so many ways, defines the era, defines the community, um, but also influences how she looks at the world um, very early on. And, and really, that this was sort of a vague notion that started this novel, and that is um, a woman's entire life only about her, um, not mitigating Charming <laughs> male characters uh, to bolster it. Um, so, so with that sort of vague notion, um, and then thinking about who, where she's raised and who she is and what her history might be about. Um, there was one phrase that just came to me again and again that um, that I had heard used by people I know of that generation and certainly of New York area. And that was something as simple as parlor, floor, and basement, um, which is how um, people would refer to uh, the apartments in brownstones, um, that, you'd, that they would live in the parlor, floor, and basement, um, sort of ground level and then the first level. Um, and it just was a refrain that just sort of stuck in my head and, and I sort of started teasing it out, thinking about language and thinking about, you never hear anyone say that anymore, and that's that's, that's sort of a lost language of another generation. Um, and who says parlor anymore? <laughs> um, and and just, just parsing that phrase, um, sort of the propriety of parlor floor, which sort of speaks of, you know, a, a, a kind of uh, pseudo-wealth and... Um, sophistication and then end basement, <laughs> you know um, and and that whole idea of uh, the public world and the private, what's what's stored below and what's presented uh, to society. Um, and And it's just more and more that I' thought about, just that phrase, uh, I kind of saw sort of a metaphor arising out of it. Again, what's displayed for the public, the parlor, the place where you only go at certain times, the place that's always kept dusted and neat. Uh, And then basements, you know, where things are stored, where life goes on, where you wash your clothes, where you cook your meals. Um, And and that seemed to me to say something about that generation, you know, that I think we've almost forgotten now um, that there was a time when so much was not said. Um, and and not acknowledged, um, and, and also that sort of aspiration, the immigrant aspiration since Marie is a first-generation uh, immigrant to the country, uh, the respectability of parlor floor, and then that negotiating between the two, you know, up and down, and so that idea of stairs and negotiating and, and losing your footing. And so out of just that little phrase, um, a, a kind of metaphor began to reveal itself, and out of the metaphor, events began to reveal themselves. So the, the novel opens um, with uh, a, a neighbor, a girl who lives next door, who lives in the parlor floor and basement, um, who is aspiring. Uh, she's not aspiring to great wealth. She's aspiring to meet a husband. She's just started working in the city, and she thinks the city is dirty, basement. Uh, she wants pl- someplace nicer. Um, and and that evening, she tumbles down the stairs. Um, so it was really um, sort of an organic <laughs> development of a story that I had not brought uh, to to my desk. It was more a story that developed out of the writing and thinking about the lost language, um, and and how much language can reveal even the most ordinary uh, phrase and and common phrase, how much it can reveal about a way of looking at the world.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is Alice McDermott, author of seven novels, including the National Book Award winner Charming Billy, and her new novel called Someone. Tell me more about Marie's brother. He's a major character in the book. He was a priest and quit, has doubts about his faith. And although Marie never explicitly says to herself that he is gay, it's clear she knows something is up with his sexuality. And I'm wondering about the decisions you made about him as a character.
1: Yeah, well, again, very much um, on one level, you know, associated with that whole metaphor of what's presented uh to the public what's presented to society, propriety um, and 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 what's not acknowledged. Um, it was important to me um to try to capture and and that involved an effort on my part uh, the the mentality of this time and place um that, you know, there's, there's a real risk, even when you're writing about a character who, you know, did make it into the 21st century. It's not that she lived 300 years ago, um, of, of a kind of uh, presentism. You know, the way we think about things now, it is assumed we've always thought about things. Um, so it was important to me to to capture that sense without making an editorial statement about it. Clearly, uh, there's indication, as far as Marie can see, of of his struggling with his sexuality. But that's not what he's all about. That that part of it, and I think reading, uh, a contemporary reader can understand things, that even the characters living it would not have comprehended. And since it is her story and not his, it, it seemed to me that the complexity of his character um, goes far beyond his sexuality for her. and as a matter of fact, for her, the sexuality she sort of it, it it comes later in life that she she gets a glimpse of it and she really turns from it. what she what she focuses on um, is is sort of the grander aspects of his aspiration, his holiness, um, his 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 ability to to read and to contemplate that that he was somehow blessed among them ever since he was a child um that he was that he was the golden boy that he would have this golden future and a tremendous loneliness out of that that is yeah perhaps partly his sexuality but only partly from her point of view um and so it seemed to me important that um i not write about him from a contemporary point of view um, that his sexuality was number one, the be all, be all and end all of his character, and the thing that would have made him happy had he been able to acknowledge it. Um, that's a, to me that's 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 a, a, a present day way of looking at him, and also a very simplistic way of looking at him, given her experience of his entire life. Uh, so so that became interesting to me, and and a challenge, and again that whole sense of. Uh, what's seen and what's unseen, what's acknowledged, and and, and what uh, is not.
0: This story is so character-driven. Is it hard to write without thinking about plot?
1: <laughs> oh, it's terrible because constantly you're saying, oh my God, I don't have a story. I'm really in trouble here. Um, the nice thing about it, I mean, you know, I, I always tell my students you have to always think of yourself as your own first reader, not just the, the author of the work, but the first reader of the work. And when you think about what do you want as a reader, uh, well, you certainly don't want to be told things you already know. Um, so so there is that sort of pleasure um, after the pain <laughs> of, of uh, having things happen, discovering things. That's what we go to literature for, so that we can spend time with someone who has had the opportunity to take the time and reflect and maybe reveal uh, patterns and connections um, that don't necessarily exist in the real world, but that form a kind of hole uh, in in the storytelling.
0: Do you think that the creative process mirrors that in the sense that maybe when you were writing about Pegin falling down the stairs, it just was something that you put in there but then the meeting came later and it might not have happened in this incident but you write about things and something small that you write you realize has big meaning that can resonate later and come back as a theme or something like that
1: oh absolutely yeah and you know and that's that's one of the hardest things to convey to young writers to to sort of trust that um you know i I mean i think about the, the the working at words the the Getting the sentences down, the the um, you know the struggle just to to do the Joseph Conrad thing of just let the reader see you know don't try to do anything else just make sure the reader can see and the effort it takes to do that it seems to me um, gives us access to uh, a kind of some subconscious understanding we have of the story and there's intuition that we have about the story that that I think reveals itself through the hard work of getting the sentences right. Um, and young writers, so often, if they see something that feels, you know, less turn or uh, surprising or not what they had set out to write, uh, their first reaction is to take it out, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and I sometimes feel my job uh, as, as a writing instructor, as a professor, is, is simply to say, you know, keep it there for a while. Think about it. Go back and look at it and and wonder why, without planning it, without any anticipation, you described it in just that particular way. You know, what what is it about language uh, that elicited that image or that gesture? Um, And it may be that 300 pages on, you'll say, no, take it out, but it may also be that you have a subconscious understanding of the story that's trying to get through, that's trying to reveal itself to you uh, through the working at words. Um, I sometimes say, you know, think about it. It's not just that you're using words to tell a story. You're also using words as an incantation to uh, to call up the story you don't know yet.
0: I've read that you had have said something about how it's more important to you, how something sounds versus what it's about.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little.
1: Well, you know, more and more, um, it seems to me, you know, we are so inundated with story. I open my laptop in the morning and 12 stories pop up, you know, news stories, human interest stories. <laughs> um, they can be tragic. They can be funny. They can be weird. So it seems to me that uh, we've got plenty of stories um, and and literary fiction uh needs to be about something more than that. Um, that What's the thing that, that fiction can do while telling a story but that uh, journalism and uh, blogs and um, the nightly news can't do? And that's where I think the, the onus falls on the language itself, um, the, the rhythm of the language uh, and the manipulation, the manipulation of um, what's being told, what it is we see so, I mean, I see, you know, the, the fate of literary fiction, um, oddly enough, I, I think is, is dependent on um, writers who are willing to um, maybe not uh, use the lure of plot and story, but, but to give us a new way of hearing and thinking about and appreciating our language.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is Alice McDermott, author of seven novels, including the National Book Award winner Charming Billy and her new novel called Someone. Can you read a brief passage from an author that influenced you?
1: I was trying to think about something in particular that, uh, that may have affected the, the composition of someone. Um, and so I, I was looking through my notebook, and, and there's this uh, little paragraph um, from Yeats uh, that's contained in um, in his book of essays, uh, Celtic Twilight, not his poetry. To me, it, it says something about what I, I was hoping to convey in someone, and it's also about music, which for me is, is, is the gift of language as well. Um, Anyway, let me just read this. Uh, This is from Celtic Twilight. A man got into the carriage and began to play on a fiddle made apparently of an old blacking box. And though I am quite unmusical, the sounds filled me with the strangest emotions. I seemed to hear a voice of lamentation out of the golden age. It told me we are imperfect, incomplete, and no more like a beautiful woven web but like a bundle of cords knotted together and flung into a corner. it said that the world was once all perfect and kindly, and that still the kindly and the perfect world existed, but buried like a mass of roses under many spadefuls of earth. The fairies and the more innocent of the spirits dwelt within it and lamented over our fallen world in the lamentations of the wind-tossed reeds in the songs of the birds, in the moan of the waves, and in the sweet cry of the fiddle. it said that with us, the beautiful are not clever, and the clever are not beautiful, and that the best of our moments are marred by a little vulgarity, or by a pinprick out of sad recollection, and that the fiddle must ever lament about it all.
0: Had you been reading him when you were writing this book, or...? That's just something older that you remembered.
1: Actually, it's a funny thing. Um, I had read it uh, ages ago, but while I was writing this book, we have every summer we host a bunch of Irish musicians uh, <laughs> who come to a uh, to a summer camp here in D.C. We host, host the faculty. So at the time, uh, this was a week in July. My house was full of Irish music and fiddle music, and hearing the music made me remember this passage. So I went and found it so that I could give it to one of the fiddle players, um, and that was this was sort of uh, somewhat early on in the in the drafting of someone. And 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 when I read it again, um, I recognized, oh yeah, okay, something about that needs to be here. Um, so I kept it. Sometimes life provides you with things.
0: I know, and it's amazing too how how literature and poetry can serve you at the time like you can reread it later and it gives you something new
1: yes yeah you know that that always struck me um right after 9-11 being in the profession i guess i noticed it maybe more than than other people might have but how often in the weeks and months after 9-11 poetry was quoted um or or pieces of, of certainly um E.B. White's um, about New York, uh, his prose, um, but but it just seemed to me that. I wasn't used to hearing, you know, like the nightly news and NPR and and, um, and and snippets of poetry, and and they weren't poems that were written about the event. It was too soon, but they were um, like Auden's poem, you know, which was written in the, in the '30s that that I heard again and again, and you know, it really brought home to me, oh, this is why, this is why we read. You you read poetry, and because then it's there when when words fail us, you know, when things happen. That we have no words for yet, um, that we're devastated by, but we can go back and find something that wasn't necessarily written about the event, but gives us language for the event. Uh, and I think that's true. I think you know, it, it's a way of storing up um, reading. Uh, if you go to poetry when when you're broke, only when you're brokenhearted, <laughs> um, you won't know where to look. Um, but but that that reading uh, and in tranquility when things aren't crazy, but storing up language and ways of looking at the world so that when those devastating and unspeakable things happen, we have some place to go to.
0: Can you read a short passage from something you wrote that might have been hard or tricky to write or something that changed or just something that you like?
1: There's a a chapter in someone um, where Marie is giving birth to her first child. This was something that Again, I wanted to do that, that sense of the, the ordinary drama of her life, but but also um, very much of a woman's experience. And, of course, following on that is, oh, gosh, um, who's going to want to read this, and is it too ordinary? Um, so my the, the challenge um, to write about a woman in labor, to, to write about this particular woman in labor, her life, her experience, her pain, um, and also the time um, you know uh, of the delivery mid mid 20th century um so i, I, I found this um, sort of a challenge because uh, you know everybody's labor is um, more or less the same and 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 to use uh, giving birth as a way to individualize the character uh, experience. Um, sort of gave me some trouble. Um, so I'll just read a little bit of that. The doctor was red-faced. His hands were abrupt. Mrs. Cummerford, he said, you are not cooperating. Although I could not see it, I knew there must have been perspiration beaded on his forehead because as he leaned to shout at me, a drop of it hit the sheet beneath my chin. I didn't see it fall, but somehow I heard the sound it made, and in my pain, I imagined that out of that sound, the sound of a raindrop on a dry roof, there rose more profoundly the scent of the hospital laundry, the scent of bleach on the sheet that nearly reminded me, too, of some experience in this life that I might have liked might have loved, even, my first night with Tom under sheets that had not been dried in the sun or on a line in my mother's kitchen. But the pain was a swelling black tie that engulfed the brief, bright recollection in the same way it began to absorb the doctor's red face and the hovering nurses in white and the light in the room, daylight or electric, who could say? I had been in labor for hours and hours by then, days perhaps. I had not understood, I had not been told the extent of the suffering involved, from the cramps of the enema to the scrape of the razor to the endless searing rise and the long, aching fall of each contraction. I had sent so many entreaties to heaven by then, first that my baby would be healthy, then that I would please not die, now only that the pain might end that I had begun to see myself as some kind of fuller-brush salesman knocking on a solid door, a door without hinges, without knobs. Hours, days, could it be weeks into this ordeal, I had given up the hope of getting an answer, and so turned my pleas instead to my own father, who had loved me and would have wept to see me here, trussed up like a beast in a slaughterhouse, trapped under the weight of my belly, Wracked with pain, and now, among so many indignities, this man, this doctor, shouting angrily into my face, I am cooperating, I managed to say.
0: And so in the end, do you feel like you captured that? <laughs> um,
1: I hope so. I hope so. It certainly um, is her unique experience, I suppose, um, and, and, and that is the thing, the, the individual life, um, individual language, individual way of looking at life coming through the common experience uh, of pain and suffering in, in labor.
0: Where do you write?
1: Uh, I have an office uh, at home that uh, I mostly write in occasionally. Um, when the house is empty, I might uh, wander to the kitchen table or uh, to another room. but. But essentially, it's uh, it's my place with my desk.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: You know, that's really funny. I've been thinking about that question. Um, I suppose I, I, I go to writing to get away from the rest of my life. <laughs> um, so maybe I've sort of turned that on its head. Um, I, I never feel that I have to get away from writing. It's more I have to uh, get life organized so that I can get to writing.
0: And who do you show your work to to get feedback?
1: You know, I don't. I'm at that stage that it would be a terrible burden to to place on someone um, other than uh, my editor. um, And uh, when something is ready, when when I feel I've taken it just about as far as I'm going to take it, then I give it to him and, and we talk about it.
0: And uh, how have you dealt with rejection?
1: I guess I don't think about it. Um, You know, I mean, the rejection of, um, you know, here's a story that you think might be right for some magazine, and the magazine says, no, not right for us. Well, that's okay. Yeah, maybe not. Um, uh, Or the, uh, you know, the rejection of a a harsh review. Um, I guess... um, I don't read my reviews, so that's one way to deal with that part of it. This, this is how I have to live. Um, this is this is who I am and how I have to live. Um, I need to write, and I need to do the best I can. And if it's not always um, great, that's well, that's the way it is. Um, that's who I am, and this is I've done my best. So, so I don't. I guess I don't think about it a lot. I don't. I don't suffer over it.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: <laughs> oh, my goodness, that's like saying your favorite child. <laughs> you know, um, if, if you say one, then then you've left out all the others. Um, I guess my favorite word is, is, is the right word in the right context at any given moment.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Alice McDermott. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.